Thank you, Pastor Paul. Our series um, I've entitled Whiter Than Snow. Uh, It comes from the passage we've quoted several times this morning where God says to his people, come let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Why does God want us to be white as snow? Why does God take action to make us whiter than snow? He is under no obligation to do that. I I don't know if you would agree with that statement, but um, God is under no obligation uh, to cleanse us, to make us pure, to make us holy. And so any desire on his part, I would argue, and I think the scriptures would present, is a work of his grace. Any desire on his part to cleanse us is his mercy. He could leave us just as we are. He could leave us in the corruption of sin. He could leave us in the guilt that we, uh, that we have as sinners and allow that to run its course. But God desires something. In the words of uh, Mirsoff Wolf, he desires to embrace us. God desires to embrace us, but that poses a problem because God is holy. He is pure. He is without sin. He is without blemish. There is no uncleanness in God. There is no deceit in God. There is only purity and holiness. In the vision of Isaiah in chapter 6, when he sees God on his throne, it is this beautiful, ornate, glorious scene of light and translucent glory and angels declaring full time, holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. This being who exists in holiness cannot embrace what is unclean. He cannot embrace sin. He cannot embrace corruption. He cannot embrace deceit and act like it's okay. There has to be a justness and a justice upon the sin and the uncleanness that we bear. And so this problem has to be solved because God is not content with the separateness between us. God is not content with, as he says in in Isaiah chapter 1, Ah, sinful nation, this is verse 4, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. God's not content with our estrangement. And so he moves towards us. He moves to embrace us, to be reconciled to us. He's not the offender. He's the offended party. And the offended party here moves to embrace the offender. And he does that by offering this purifying grace that he has. He does that by sending His Son, the spotless Lamb of God, to cleanse us of our guilt and the uncleanness that travels with it. And so He says to His people, come, let's talk about this, let's debate this, let's let's do business together. I 
will cleanse your sins. I will remove your impurity. And I love what he says later in Isaiah. He says in in chapter 55, Ho to everyone who thirsts, come and buy drink without money. Come and buy food without money. Just come. I'll provide for you what you need so that we can be reconciled, so that you can be embraced by your heavenly Father. This is how Paul says it in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. Speaking of the grace of God, Titus says that the salvation of God has appeared, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawful, all lawlessness and to purify for himself, notice the language, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. This is a God who is unwilling to allow us to be estranged, who is determined to embrace us and has set out the plan for how he can embrace us as his children. I'm going to take us on a journey through this series, believing that God wants to embrace us, and that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to make it possible for God to embrace us. I'm going to lead us through that thought because something happens once we get embraced. Somehow, for some reason, we stop embracing others. We develop this purity culture within And our embrace stops. We enjoy the embrace of God, but that embrace loses its mission. The embrace of God is so that we can experience the mission of God to send His Son, to sacrifice Himself for us. And we don't adopt that as our own and go and embrace others. The way Paul ends his uh, letter to Romans in Romans 15, 7, he says, and I I love the language because in chapter 14, he has just argued that they should love one another. Chapter 12, love. Chapter uh, 13, submission. And then chapter 14, dealing with the conflict within the church. And this is how he says it. So welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. He's speaking of the embrace that the body gives to one another. It speaks of the embrace that we've received that we pass on to others. And so we're going to talk about how we get into this and lose the mission of Christ and then how we move out of this purity culture that keeps us off the mission of Christ to embrace sinners with his grace. So be patient with me as we go through this series. This morning we're just going to establish the work of God to cleanse sinners and I'm going to move as quickly as I can. I think the lesson is very simple. Jesus was sent to purify for himself a people for his own possession. We're just going to take a little bite today on that thought. Number one, Scripture presents sin as uncleanness. Um, That's the purity idea in that verse in Titus 2.14. Now, this does not mean that sin is not fundamentally guilt, and I don't want to communicate that. Sin is guilt before God. Um, I like the way Burkhoff says it, 
that sin deserves condemnation for violating the moral requirements of God. Or another theologian, Grudem, says, failure, sin is the failure to conform to the moral law of God. And I like how he breaks it down in our actions, in our attitudes, and in our very nature. Sin is the failure to conform to the moral law of God in actions, attitudes, and in our very nature. Moses says anyone who, accursed is anyone who does not keep the law, who does not, uh, um, who does not honor the law by doing it. Um, Exodus 34, 7 says that God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And Paul in Romans 3 says the wages of sin is death. Sin, the violation of the law, lawlessness. All lawlessness is sin, John says in 1 John 3, 4. Sin is the violation of the law of God, and that brings guilt into the life, both in action, attitude, and in our very nature. And that guilt creates an uncleanness. It's a corruption within our lives and within the creation. And I think it's broader than just the corruption, the uncleanness individually, although that's a major emphasis. Because Paul speaks about the creation longing to be freed from its corruption. And this is in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and 21. The creation itself longs to expel, longs to get rid of the decay, longs to get rid of the corruption that it is enduring. And that Paul could be speaking creation as the earth. This could be a little bit more restrictive than the broad creation. He could be referring to the planet itself, longing to be free from the death of men and storing our remains in the planet. Um, it could be just the second law of thermodynamics. It could be very broad. It could be very narrow. The point is, the creation has been subjected to corruption. And the creation longs to be freed from that. And that freedom comes in the revelation of the sons of glory, Paul says. This is what God declared good, now being cursed and declared unclean. And aspects of the creation actually called unclean by God. And sin specifically renders the image bearer unclean. Our sin corrupts our hearts, our beings, the very moral fabric of who we are. The way, Paul, uh, the way Isaiah uh, says it in Isaiah chapter 1, he speaks of sin in terms of wounds. If you read, and I, I had the privilege this week of reading through the entire book of Isaiah again. In Isaiah chapter uh, 1 and verse 6, from the sole of their foot, even to the head, there is no soundness, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. He presents our sinfulness as uncleanness, calling them the faithful have become prostitutes. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah stands before the Lord and recognizes that he's a man of what? unclean lips living in a people of unclean lips the guilt that they bore recognized for them or made them recognize that there was a fundamental uncleanness that prohibited them and God actually put this on display didn't he 
In the Old Testament, when he erects the temple, when, when through David and Solomon the temple is erected and the holiness, this is the holy place, imaging the tabernacle that Moses had erected. In this holy place, you could not go. And if you had a blemish or if you had a skin disease or if you were in a certain state of your cycles, you could not enter there because you were deemed unclean and God is holy. And so it was on display, this separation between the clean and the unclean. And what had to happen was this atonement had to happen. Something had to come to clean God's people. In Leviticus 4, the great atonement passage where if sin has occurred, they're to bring a bull. How is that bull or how is that lamb and all the sacrifices, how is it to be characterized? Is to be characterized by being unblemished because it's taking the place of the blemished. It's a vicarious atonement. It stands in the place of another. In Leviticus 22.3, no uncleanness is allowed in the presence of the Lord. In Romans 3, this one might interest you. Turn with me to Romans 3. Sometimes we read these passages and we don't understand sort of the the meaning of the original audience. Paul has been arguing for the uncleanness of the world, baiting his readers. You can hear them in the background as he rails against sin in chapter 1 of Romans and rails against lawlessness in chapter 2. And you can hear them in the background going, yes, Paul, get them, sick them, those unclean people. And then he says this, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? What is circumcision? The removal of the flesh. It's a sign of cleansing. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? No, by no means let God be true, but every man a liar. Verse 9, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. So he takes this, clean, this cleansing metaphor that was in their society, this sign of cleansing, and he says, it doesn't help you if your heart isn't cleansed, if you're not made pure. Jesus was specifically sent to deal with that. He was specifically sent to deal with the guilt that sin creates, that being born even in nature by Adam creates. He was sent to deal with that through a vicarious sacrifice, something done for another person. In this case, I like what, uh, what one author says about Dr. Shedd. He says that personal atonement Atonement provided by you is an atonement provided by the offender. Vicarious atonement is satisfaction that is provided by the offended party. In this case, God. Personal atonement excludes mercy. I have to atone for my sins. I, there's no forgiveness. There's, I have to work for it. Vicarious atonement is the highest form of mercy because God steps in and provides for our atonement. Personal atonement forever is in the making. You cannot stop atoning for your sins because the sin is 
and has an eternal bearing to it, and the offense against the individual has an forever, uh, a forever effect. There can never be justice done once the offense is created. And that's an important thought to remember. There can never, we can never experience satisfying justice through our own atonement. Vicarious atonement is reconciliation with God and eternal life. So Jesus was sent to provide vicarious atonement, to be, as John says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold him. This is John's language when he sees Jesus and he says, Behold him. And how can we move on without taking a moment to behold him? The Lamb of God who was born a man, born under the law, Paul says, to redeem those who were under the law. Isaiah, as he continues, says that he was a lamb before the slaughter. As a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. But he was broken. He was slain for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was put on him. He is that substitute for us. As he talks about and as the writer of Hebrews highlights in Hebrews chapter 9. Speaking of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, this is verse 11 of Hebrews 9, of good things that have come, then through a greater, more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, which had to be blemish-free, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is why Jesus was sent. He was sent to deal with the the offense that we have, that God has through our sin. But he also came to renew the creation. He also came to cleanse it. He also came to, re- to bring this renewal into the creation, as Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 15. That God was reconciling the creation to himself through Jesus Christ, by making peace through his blood. And then in Romans chapter 8, again, the hope that the creation would be set free. Listen to how Paul says this, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The creation longs for that freedom, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, 
We have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is what God is going to do. He is going to free the creation from the corruption and the uncleanness. So guilt brings uncleanness, and Christ was sent to deal with the guilt, to atone for that, and then to cleanse the world, all of the creation of the impurity that it bears. But specifically, image bearers are cleansed by the grace of God. In Isaiah 4.4, Isaiah says that God washes away the bloodstains. He washes away the filth that our sin creates. As Isaiah 1.18 affirms, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. In John, 1 John 5, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Titus 3, 5, the goodness of God has appeared through the washing of regeneration. Again, a cleansing metaphor and a powerful text that we will come back to many times is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 11, after he lists the defiling sins in chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, he says this, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This is Jesus come to purify for himself a people for his own possession. How did he do it? He washed them. This is Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself for her so that he might cleanse her, washing her with his word. We were sanctified, literally positionally set apart to be holy unto the Lord, to be in service to the Lord, and justified. The great act of that atonement that transfers our guilt to Jesus and a miracle of His grace transfers to us the declaration of righteousness. The obedience of Christ standing in the place of our sin. This is what Christ was sent to do. To cleanse the unclean. And we see this in His mission, don't we? We'll talk about that next week. The conclusion is that the church is the community of the purified. I'm looking out and if by faith you have reached out to Jesus, if by faith you have made Jesus the object of your faith and what he has done for you, if this table represents the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf, then God has cleansed you. You are the pure people. You are the people that he has purified for his own possession. This is how he speaks of us in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 when he says, Father, I set myself apart. I make myself holy and specific for your use so that they, those that I have given your word will be set apart, will be made holy for you. We are no longer sinners. We are now saints. I love how Paul opens the book of Corinthians. Listen to this. The, the Corinthian church was filled with corruption. I mean, sins that Paul said weren't even named among the Gentiles. And this is how he opens the book. To the church of God, 
that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. To those, he draws attention to the setting apart work of God on their behalf, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, both their Lord and ours. We're no longer saints. I mean, we're no longer sinners. We're saints. We've been declared the children of God. We've been made holy unto the Lord through Jesus Christ, who is, as Paul says later in chapter 1, who is our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We are literally now God's holy place. Think about this text in 1 Corinthians in chapter 3. Do you not know? Think of this in the context of that Old Testament holy place where nothing unclean could enter. Think about the separation between God and man. Think about this in that context. Do you not know that you are now God's temple? about the presence and the embrace of God in those words. We are no longer the unclean. By His purifying grace, He has made our sins. He has washed them away. He has robed us in the garments of righteousness. We are no longer unclean. We are no longer the defiled. We are no longer filled with corruption. The Old Testament requirement of purity has been met. We can embrace God now because we are clean by the washing of regeneration, by the sanctifying work of Jesus. We can embrace and be embraced by God because Jesus has in fact come and purified for himself a people for his own possession for all time. And this is what unites us. This is why we gather. We gather as the people of God who have been purified by the grace of Jesus Christ, the great cleanser, the great atoner and cleanser of our sin. God's kingdom in part consists of the people that Jesus has atoned for and cleansed of their sin. I say in part because his kingdom is much more than just us. But it certainly is focused on us and what he has done for this. This from Revelation 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Think of that language in terms of the atoning. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one who has, we have been sprinkled by his blood. Clean. Declared clean. Made clean. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits in the throne and to the Lamb. And did you notice the clothed in white robes? Folks, this is who we are today and who we will be when we gather together with all the people of God, purified for his own possession for all time in the presence of the holiness of God. 
This is who we are today, and this is what unites us. The grace of God to come and take his soap of Jesus, the fuller soap, and to cleanse us and make us clean. I think we should rejoice in that. I think when we come to this table, we rejoice in what Jesus has provided for us in his broken body and his shed blood. But there is an inherent danger that I want to walk us through. It comes from our hearts, and it accompanies the cleansing work of Christ. It doesn't come with his work. It's, it comes out of our hearts when we experience the purifying grace of Christ. And that is we can actually create a purity culture. The very thing that unites us becomes a point of division. And that's where we leave the mission of Christ. And that's where the church loses its mission focus. And that's where the church loses its presence in the world. And I think a great example of that is found in Galatians 2, which we just finished studying. When Jews from Jerusalem show up into Antioch, where Peter, an apostle of the Lord, who has sat and had a vision of of pork coming down from heaven, unclean food, and God says, what I've declared clean, don't you declare unclean, and then the next thing that happens is a Gentile is knocking at his door, an unclean person is knocking at his door, and Peter, kind of dull, I think it would have taken me longer probably than it took Peter, but Peter kind of figured it out, oh, you're not talking about food, you're talking about people. It's not the food that's unclean, it's the people that I've been saying are unclean. And there's a knock at the door and the voice says, go with him. And so he goes. And now he's sitting in Antioch having a meal with those very people that God has declared clean. And he withdraws for purity's sake. This is the inherent danger that I want, to ex- I want to explore together. Let me pray for us. Father, we are people who rejoice today in the...